0: Section Twelve of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Aruso. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. Chapter Five, Part Two. One of the earliest demands made by the Suffrage Association was for a law that should allow of absolute divorce for drunkenness and this was soon followed by demands for divorce for other causes. In presenting a petition to the New York legislature, pressing these measures, Mrs. Staten addressed the assembly, and from her remarks I take the following words, Allow me to call the attention of that party now so much interested in the slave of the Carolinas to the similarity in his condition and that of the mothers, wives, and daughters of the Empire State. The Negro has no name, He is Coffee Douglas or Coffee Brooks, just those Coffee he may chance to be. The woman has no name. She is Mrs. Richard Rowe or Mrs. John Doll, just whose Mrs. she may chance to be. Coffee has no right to his earnings. He cannot buy or sell, nor make contracts, nor lay up anything that he can call his own. Mrs. Rowe has no right to her earnings. She can neither buy, sell, nor make contracts, nor lay up anything that she can call her own. Coffee has no right to his children. They may be bound out to cancel a father's debts of honour. The white unborn child, even by the last will of the father, may be placed under the guardianship of a stranger, a foreigner. Coffee has no legal right to existence. He is subject to restraint and moderate chastisement. Mrs. Rowe has no legal existence she has not the best right to her person. The husband has the power to restrain and administer moderate chastisement. The prejudice against colour, of which we hear so much, is no stronger than that against sex. It is produced by the same cause and manifested very much into the same way. The Negro skin and the woman's sex are both prima facie evidence that they were intended to be in subjection to the white Saxon man the few social privileges which the man gives the woman he makes up to the negro in civil rights the woman may sit at the same table and eat with the white man the free negro may hold property and vote it is difficult for our thought to reach the low level from which this comparison is made it ignores all the moral and spiritual conceptions that gave rise to and hallow marriage but looking upon marriage as a mere financial compact and taking the laws even as they then were a few things may be said coffee has no name that he can call his own elizabeth cady staten has her own baptismal name the name of her honoured father and that of her honoured husband and the opportunity to make those names more her own by personal achievement than any one's else her mother, her father, her husband, and her son are as dependent upon her for preserving the character and distinctiveness of the name as she is upon them. Why Lucy Stone should have put inconvenience and indignity upon both herself and her husband for the sake of continuing to wear her father's name instead of assuming her husband's, I never could understand. She did not share the name she gave her child, and there is another distinction between the nameless coffee and the trebly named Saxon woman, the husband's name was not thrust upon her by uttering the simple monosyllable "No," she could decline to wear it. It was only as she consented to be mistress of a husband's heart and home that she passed from the condition of femme soul and acquired a title and an additional name. Coffee has no right to his earnings; this would be of less consequence to Coffee if he had a right to his master's earnings. When a right to another's earnings goes along with a mutual relation towards a home of master and mistress, the difference between Coffee and Mrs. Rowe is unspeakable. Coffee cannot buy or sell, make contracts, nor lay up anything that he can call his own. If Coffee had the right to prevent his master from buying, selling, making contracts, or laying up anything that he could call his own until Cuffy's wants had been provided for in the most ample manner, the world would have felt less moved over Cuffey's wrongs. Coffee has no right to his children. Mrs. Rowe has a right to compel Mr. Rowe to bestow his name upon her children and to support the boys until they are twenty-one and the girl forever. Cuffey has no legal right to existence mrs rowe has so much legal right to existence that she stands toward the state and toward her husband in the relation of a preferred creditor the state cannot call upon her for its most arduous duties which must however be performed in her behalf her husband cannot dispose of real property without her signature if he dies solvent nothing can prevent her taking a fair share of his estate and he may give her the whole that if he dies bankrupt, neither his will nor the state nor anything else can make her pay one dollar of his debts. Coffee is subject to restraint and moderate chastisement. The husband has the power to restrain and administer moderate chastisement. The public house-whooping of a husband by his wife is a rare sight, but when it occurs the law is far more ready to overlook the breach of order than it is to permit the slightest attempt at assault and battery upon the wife. As the remaining statements have no reference to the laws i may excuse myself from telling how strangely beneath the dignity of truth they seem to me that they were urged in connection with a bill asking for divorce for drunkenness suggests that such a plea was made an entering wedge from the radical divorce measures that have been advocated in suffrage conventions any state would at that time grant legal separation for a wife from a drunken husband, and would compel the husband to support the wife to the extent of his means. This matter of easier divorce has been pressed steadily from the beginning, but with very little of the result that the suffragists desired. In the Convention of the National Council of Women, which met in Washington, D.C. in February 1895, the suffrage association were largely represented. Their Committee on Divorce Reform consisted of Ellen Battled dietrich Chairman, and Mary A. Livermore, and Fanny B. Ames. This report was in part as follows. In accordance with the instructions of the Executive Committee of the Council, your Chairman sent 48 letters to the Governors of States and Territories, asking each to call the attention of his Legislature to the situation concerning divorce laws, and requesting the appointment of a committee to consider the matter, said committee to consist of an equal number of men and women. Here it is the same old story. Theirs is not an intelligent presentment of changes desired, but simply continued urging of women for personal share in the making of the laws. In commenting upon the refusal of the governor of Iowa, among others, the committee says... And yet Iowa is one of the states which has recently formed the commission of men to consider making Iowa divorce laws uniform with those of all other states. The laws that make it possible for a woman divorced in one state to be looked upon in another state as still bound were not petitioned against. Uniformity in the divorce laws of the United States is one of the great legislative reforms that are moving slowly but surely, and with that, it appears, the suffrage appeal has nothing to do. The committee closed its report by saying, we might as well face the fact that the official servants of the United States cherish frank contempt for women's opinion and wishes, and that too in regard to a matter which concerns the welfare of women far more vitally than it does the welfare of men. The one thing we should deprecate is having men make any new laws of fresh provision for women's protection. In the spring of 1854, Miss Anthony and Ernestine Rose presented a petition to the New York Legislature, and the Albany Argus of March 4th published a resume of their appeal. The demands were that husband and wife should be tenants in common of property without survivorship, but with a partition on the death of one, that a wife should be competent to discharge trusts and powers the same as a single woman, that the statute in respect to a married woman's property be changed so that her property could descend as though she had been unmarried, that married women should be entitled to execute letters testamentary and of administration, that married women should have power to make contracts and transact business as though unmarried, that they should be entitled to their own earnings, subject to their proportional liability for support of children, that post-nuptial acquisitions should belong equally to husband and wife, that married women should stand on the same footing as single women, as parties or witnesses in legal proceedings, that they should be sole guardians of the minor children, that the homestead should be inviolable and inalienable for widows and children, that the laws in relation to divorce should be revised, and drunkenness made cause for absolute divorce, that better care should be taken of single women's property, that their rights might not be lost through ignorance, that the preference of males in the descent of real estate should be abolished, that women should exercise the right of suffrage and be eligible to all offices occupations and professions and to act as jurors that courts of conciliation should be organized as peacemakers that a law should be enacted extending the masculine designation in all statutes of the state to females i cannot fully understand miss anthony's position but in some notable particulars not her laws but better ones are in force when miss anthony wrote to inquire who was responsible for repelling an act of eighteen sixty for which she had worked with her well-known zeal judge charles j folger replied in part i think with deference i say it that you are not strictly accurate in calling the legislation of eighteen sixty two a repelling one in but one thing did it repel." in the sense of taking away right or power or privilege or freedom that the Act of 1860 gave. On the contrary, in some respects it gave more or greater. Miss Anthony says, in comment on Judge Folger's letter, Mr. Folger makes mistakes in regard to the effect of these bills, quite forgetting that the wife has never had an equal right to the joint earnings of the co-partnership as no valuation has ever been placed on her labour in the household, to which she gives all her time, thought and strength. A law securing to the wife the absolute right of, to half the joint earnings and, at the death of the husband, the same control of property and children that he has when she dies might make some show of justice, but it is a provision not yet on the stated books of any civilised nation. If it were to be placed on the stated book, would not one have to be placed beside it making the wife equally responsible for the support of the husband? The law can only take cognizance of the earnings of that member of the firm who transacts business with the outside world. How the proceeds of mutual labour shall be best made their own is for each husband and wife to settle. It cannot be matter of legislation it is interesting to think what an increase of domesticity there would be if a business partnership such as miss anthony suggests were demanded by the statutes the law which now lays the whole support of the husband and father whether the wife and daughter work in the home or not would make it obligatory for the home partner to give all her time thought and strength to labour in the household in order to bring in her bill for services The real test of the working of woman suffrage is to be found in the answer to the question whether better laws have been framed as a consequence. There has been no advance in legislation in Utah or Wyoming through the action or votes of women. The authorities whom I have consulted do not know of any legislation in Colorado which can be traced directly to the presence of women in the legislature. Exception may possibly be made in regard to the Age of Consent bill which, in common with nearly all the states, Colorado passed in favor of raising the age. The bill was introduced by a woman member and was strongly advocated by the others, and it called forth an unwise discussion and a repulsive scene in the House. A great many women have been elected to county offices in the state, especially those connected with the schools, and those of clerk and treasurer. In answer to a question, my correspondent adds, I do not know of any great improvements of any kind or description in our county affairs that have been made in the past four years. In Wyoming, where women have voted so many years, less restraint is imposed on liquor selling than in most of the other states. Divorce is granted for any one of the 11 causes after a residence of but six months. The age of consent was only 14 years as late as 1890. Gambling is legal. Not only do the laws mention many games with cards as lawful, but the stated declares no town, city, or municipal corporation in this territory shall hereafter have power to prohibit, suppress, or regulate any gaming house or game licensed as provided for in this chapter. Excusable homicide is also defined by stated it is allowable when committed by accident or misfortune in the heat of passion or sufficient provocation or upon a sudden combat provided that no undue advantage is taken nor any dangerous weapon used and that the killing is not done in a cruel or unusual manner the laws could hardly have been worse before women voted it is matter of surprise to find how generally in western towns and states in which women has voted or held office woman has degraded politics and politics has degraded woman this is not to my mind proof that american women are degenerating but it suggests that the women who have sought political life are not representative another legal demand very early made by the suffrage leaders was that for the entrance of women into men's colleges so far as the state could control this by law it has done so Every educational institution that receives state support from the primary school to the state university is now open to women. Cornell University, opened in October 1868, was aided by a state gift of a million acres, and opened its doors to women in April 1872. In the West, the state universities would have been closed for lack of pupils during the war if women had not attended them. The New York State Suffrage Association includes in its report of the doings of the Constitutional Convention a report of its legislative work for the 22 years of its existence. Of the many petitions presented during those years, but three relate to anything but suffrage in some form, and these did not originate with the New York Suffrage Association. One of these three related to the bill to secure police matrons in New York City. Work was begun in 1882 and ended in success in 1891, there being strong opposition to it. The Act to provide women physicians for prisons and one making mother and father joint guardians of children passed in 1888 and 1892. Three of the suffrage bills refer to school matters, one of which was successful and two were lost. Five relate to municipal suffrage, all of which were defeated. The remaining sixteen bills were all four for suffrage, were all urged by many speakers and were all defeated. I give, in closing, Mr. Francis M. Scott's summary of the laws of New York State that relate especially to women and are in force today. Much special legislation, urged by suffrage petitions, has not been enacted at all and much has been passed in a different form suffragists say that the change of laws constitutes no reason for opposing suffrage but to my mind it constitutes a most excellent one what has been done by petition proves the power to do more by the same means and the fact that much of the best legislation has been against the demand of the suffragists or in precedence of it proves that the rights of women are in hands that are capable of meeting fresh interests as they arise Every profession and business is open to women to exactly the same extent as to men, and already women have found a place in law, medicine, architecture, journalism, and other professions. Single women always could engage in commercial and mercantile pursuits without hindrance or restriction. Notwithstanding her marriage, a woman now holds and enjoys her separate property, however acquired freed from any interference or control on the part of her husband, and from all liability for his debts. She may sell, assign, and transfer her real and personal property, and carry on any trade or business and perform any labour and services on her own sole and separate account, and her earnings are her own sole and separate property. She may sue and be sued, as if she were unmarried, and may maintain an action in her own name for injury to her person or character, including actions for slander or libel, and the proceeds of any such action are her sole and separate property. She may contract, to the same extent, with like effect in the same form as if she were unmarried, and she and her separate estate are liable thereon a widow is endowed of the third part of all the real estate whereof her husband is seized of an estate of inheritance at any time during the marriage this interest termed during the lifetime of her husband in attaches at the instant of marriage to all real estate the husband then owns and after marriage to all real estate he acquires having once attached it cannot be divested by any act of the husband or any of his creditors the wife alone can release it and if she forfeits it only in case of a divorce dissolving the marriage for her misconduct the husband cannot either sell or devise his real estate except subject to this dower right of his wife the husband's estate by courtesy of his wife's real estate is by no means so broad or so well secured as is the wife's right of dower it does not attach at all until the birth of a living child and the wife may absolutely defeat it at any time without any consent on the part of her husband either by conveying her real estate during her lifetime or by devising it by her will it is no longer necessary for the husband to join with the wife in conveying her property as husband is liable for necessaries purchased by his wife and also for money given to the wife by a third person in order to enable her to purchase necessaries, and he is bound to support her and her children without regard to the extent of her individual and separate estate. No similar obligation to furnish necessaries to a husband is imposed upon a wife. The legal definition of necessaries is very broad, being such things as are actually required for the wife's support commensurate with the husband's means. Here, wanted living as his spouse. And her station in the community. In case of a divorce, whether partial or absolute, obtained by the wife, the husband is required to pay alimony for her support during the rest of her life, even if she should remarry. A wife from whom a husband obtains a divorce cannot be required to contribute in any way to his support. Although the law has opened wide the door for all women to engage in business, It still discriminates in their favour in many particulars. No woman can be arrested in a civil action or held by an execution against the body, except in cases in which it is shown that she has committed a willful injury to person, character or property, or has been guilty of such an evasion of duty as is equivalent to a contempt of court. Thus a woman engaged in business cannot be arrested in an action for a debt fraudulently contracted all women judgment debtors whether married or single enjoy certain exemptions from the sale of their property under execution which in the case of men extend only to a householder that is a man who has and provides for a household or family every married woman is the joint guardian of her children with her husband with equal powers rights and duties in regard to them with her husband it is only the survival be it father or mother Who possesses the right to appoint a guardian by deed or by will. She has now equal rights with the father over her children. As matter of practice, the courts, when called upon to award custody of minor children in cases of separation, determine the question with reference solely to the interests of the child, with a strong leaning in the mother's favour. A husband's creditors have no claim upon the proceeds of a policy or of insurance upon his life for the benefit of his wife unless the annual premiums paid by him shall have extended five hundred dollars the proceeds of such a policy are exempt from execution for any debt owned by the wife The statists contain a large number of special provisions for the benefit of female employees in factories and mercantile houses. In the city of New York, if any man fails to pay the wages due a female employee up to $50, not only is none of his property exempt from execution, but he is liable to be imprisoned, upon a body execution and kept in close confinement without the privilege of bail. A similar rule is applicable in Brooklyn. No woman can be called upon to perform military duty. No woman can be required to serve upon any jury. No woman can be called upon by the sheriff or any peace officer to assist in quelling a disturbance or making an arrest. End of section twelve.